0: podcasting from chico california tucked in between some of northern california's best freshwater fisheries this is the barbless podcast a podcast about norcal fly fishing guiding fisheries management and sustainability if you have ideas or any questions for the show leave the guys a voice message on the barbless podcast hotline area code 530 636 also check out http://podcast.barbless.co slash slash where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com/barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey
1: everybody, welcome to of the Barbell's Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Hanna. I'm here with, of course, Chad, the man, Alderson. Alderson. What's happening, What's
2: man? What's up? Hey, uh, I think that's the first time that we have not butchered the <laughs> intro in maybe 10
1: <laughs> episodes, so congratulations, Mr. Hanna. <laughs> I'm kind of excited um, about this episode. We're, we're gonna be talking, we got Dr. Mike Larkin, a biologist over in Florida on the line. Um, Mike has been, Well, will let him talk about it, but he's, He's been uh, studying bonefish and tarpon over there for a while, and um, I'm excited just to learn more about him. I've fished for him a few times, and I, I love him as a species to target. I think they're one of the best species to fish for on a fly period in the world. And um, if, I know that we have a lot of trout junkies on that listen to our show, and if there's any bucket list item thing that you need to go do... That's uh, that's definitely Chase
2: Tarpon, and I, I have not done it yet, and I want to. So I'm going to be listening intently and asking really dumb questions that I hope our audience will think are, are interesting. <laughs>
1: so, uh, without further ado, Mike, how how you doing?
3: Good, good. Thanks for having me. My first podcast maybe my last if it goes poorly but yeah (laughs) you're doing great
1: you're doing great so far mike hey thanks a lot for taking the time um to get on get on the horn with us and and talk about this i think it's um it's super interesting you know i read your article one of your articles and um you know something that stood out to me was um you know the fact that these fish haven't changed much in 18 million years you know and when you put that in perspective of humans you know changing six million years ago it's I changed last week. I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty cool. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, Mike.
3: Sure, sure, sure. Well, I'm. Um, I was very fortunate and lucky. I got to do my my doctor work in a, at the University of Miami has a bonefish and tarpon conservation research center. So I got to do the, uh, my research there. I worked actually mostly on bonefish, but I also got to do uh, we did some satellite tagging and tarpon and some aging and tarpon. And um, we were funded by different agencies, um, the National Women's Fishing Association, the National Fish and Foundation. But when I was there, I was one of two of the graduate students to first be funded by – back then they were the Bonefish and Tarpon Unlimited. Now they've changed their name to the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust. Trust. I mean, this other yeah. guy, Robert Humpson. But anyways, but back in the day, it was much smaller. Bonefish Tarpon Limited. Now they're this big, Bonefish Tarpon Trust. Much more of a presence online and in social media. But anyway, I was very fortunate. That's how I got started and involved with that. My my graduate work. So,
1: so, tagging, following, catching tarpon is that what you spent um, in bonefish? That's what you spent a lot of time time doing.
3: I did. I did. I and mean, for bonefish, I actually did a, a stock assessment. A bonefish, but uh, I was also very fortunate. I was the first person to deploy a satellite tag on a tarpon, uh, so that was a lot of fun. Um, you know, the new technology. Of course, you know you run into main bumps in the roads. You know, some successful tags, some unsuccessful. But anyway, that was a lot of fun when I when I started there. But you know, to the working on bonefish, tarpon. The first step was really to dig through the literature and really educate yourself on these species as much as you can. So I feel like I've I've been done done my my background research on. Well, um, what, so,
2: tarp. when you put these um, these tarpon on satellites and launch them into space, what's the objective?
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> really, to find out where they're where they're going. Back then, we were really trying to answer the big questions like, uh, do they respect international borders, and they don't. Like, for example, um, to give you a little quick insight into Florida, Puerto Ranzas, Texas, and the Gulf of Mexico, all the way down over to Florida. Those were you know big big tarpon areas but back in the, the 40s and 50s in Port rancis texas that was actually the tarpon capital of the world now i would argue that florida is but anyway back in the 40s and 50s it was a big tarpon fishery and it crashed and really trying to answer why and one of the things that was clear if we saw from the satellite tagging is that the texas tarpon they certainly cross that boundary they go into national waters they go to mexico and they're harvested down there. So that was one of the big questions. Um, looking at their movement across international borders like Texas and Mexico, as well as, you know, movements around Florida, from Florida up to North Carolina. We didn't go all the way up to Chesapeake. So we're really just trying to understand their, their movements and behavior, as well as spawning, too. You know, we didn't move them. We um, defined um, some new spawning uh, locations for tarpon with the satellite tagging. So we answered a lot of questions. So, so the,
2: the satellite movement, tags are spawning, basic. spawning, behavior. And the, the satellite tags basically have a transponder or something that can go up to satellite, bounce back down to wherever the uh, the the office is, and you guys can record their migration. Is that how it works?
3: It it does very very similar to that. So what it actually does so underwater, you know, it can't you know send a signal to a satellite, but it's a it's a data logger. So the tag actually has a depth sensor, a salinity sensor, a temperature sensor and a light sensor, and you can use all that information to find out where the fish is located. So meaning you go, you know, okay, where was the tag? And then you program it. Okay, record all this information, and then pop off, you know, three months from now. And you can use all that data to find out where it is. Like, I apologize, I'm not as familiar with California, but like over here, like in the bays, like if it's in, if it's in like, like Biscayne Bay, if it's in... Uh, Forty feet of water it 's not in Biscayne bay there 's no place anywhere near there that 's that deep, so you can you can count out down okay if it 's in this deep of water and from light level from that light sensor you know sunrise and sunset you get an idea of the latitude and longitude i 'm sorry more the um the latitude there as well as the um, we have um, Along the coast of Florida and the Gulf of Mexico, we have different sensors for temperature and salinity, so you can kind of match that up. As well, as if it's in real high salinity, you know it's offshore. It's in very low salinity, you know it's inshore. So anyway, and then with the satellite, we tell it to pop off. It pops off. It has a pin that'll actually corrode. It'll go to the surface, and then it sends all that data that's logged to a satellite. So you never have to see the fish again. Oh, that's... that's good. You don't like, oh, I have to wait for somebody to capture it and all that. You yeah. Know? There's That's super th-
2: cool. So it's yeah. like it just basically turns into a buoy after a while, pops yeah, yeah the surface, yeah, it pops off. and then reports and then dies.
3: And it made a lot of fun trips too because it would pop off, but like it, it keeps sending satellites. It doesn't know the tag doesn't know if the satellite's getting or not. So we would get the data; would get real chunky. It would get mm-hmm. chunks of it. But what we would do would go track it down because if we get it back, we get every single data point that it recorded. So we just had a lot of fun trips of going to beaches and and finding them. Uh, cause we have no satellite. I'm trying one, you know, guy in Texas, we literally knocked on his door. Like, did you find something on the beach last week? And you know, he had it in his backyard. So we had some like, how do you guys know that they would freak out on us? Cause we'd be at their doorstep. You know, I think you have one of our tags. So they're like, no, we don't like, yes, you do.
4: That's crazy. But
3: anyway, um, but it was a lot of fun trips getting back did, and like uh, potting the data and looking at it. So
2: you guys, you couldn't put a GPS on them, I assume because of power, power restrictions. Is that the main issue?
3: yeah and also they there is also well they're correct and because underwater you know the satellite transmission underwater now we did also do some work with spot tagging, so they roll right they'll come up to the surface and roll, yeah. and they will break the surface. so that's another way again, you only get data points when they roll, right it has to be technology was still so crude when I was working on it. it's gotten better since then, yeah. um but anyway, um so but it also helps so you get data point, but you still need to roll right to, yeah
1: yeah, to get the data point so t- let's' that I was get, a lot of fun now we're we're going to get into the migration a little bit too but let's talk about um kind of the the um morphology or just the the physical traits of the fish and uh, you know going that life, life history like, so yeah. yeah yeah and Megalops, right isn't that what it's the scientific name
3: yeah megal, a large eye yeah yeah yeah, <clears throat> which is where they get their name from you I mean, uh, <clears throat> know I, I could really let me start real quick with the um with the um the fossil record yeah. first. And oh, then yeah, get it that'd,
2: that'd be great.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so to tell you real quick, I just find it's really interesting. So the first tarpon ancestors arrived in this planet 160 million years ago. Now, they weren't the tarpon that we fish for today, but they were the ancestors' tarpon. They, they still had big, loves, big eyes and all that, but 160 million years ago, that was during that Jurassic period. So they were on the planet, you know, when T-Rex and Stegosaurus, all those really cool dinosaurs were around. That's when they first... Arrived, and then they survived the the end of the Cretaceous period about sixty five million years ago. That's when the big the big meteor hit and most of the life on this planet died. Well, they survived that, but then in um, about twenty three they evolved over time, and there was actually fifteen different species of tarpon over the in the fossil record. They evolved over time, and then about um, twenty three million years ago is when Megalopsallicus, the, the fish that we fish for today, that's when they first arrived. What I find so interesting is. So you know, you take 160 million years ago it was when they first arrived, and then the Megaloselankus that was 23 million years ago. So you have 137 million years of evolution to really make those changes for that fish that we fish for today. And then you put it in perspective of where were we? The first humans didn't even show up till six million years ago, and Homo sapiens, you know, the species that we are today, they didn't even show up till. Three hundred, three hundred thousand. We're not even talking a million years. We're talking about three hundred thousand years ago. So it's just interesting that we're, you know, fishing for a, a fish that's been on this planet for twenty-three million years ago, and it's, and, and their ancestors were more around much longer than our ancestors were. You know, yeah, that's like that's
2: like that mind so. blowing. It it makes me think of the Cosmos episode with uh, I forget the the author. I think it was one of them. He's talking about the scale of time, and the, he's he's standing on this calendar. I don't know if you've seen that old the old one but he's he's like in the corner of the 31st day like in the corner the the last five minutes of the whole the whole year of the calendar and that's like human history so it's like yeah yeah yeah. we've been alive for such a
3: little part of that yeah 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 yeah. yeah. that's crazy but anyway yeah and then but i was gonna go into the um the the eyes over their life history what do you guys prefer
2: i think both yep Wherever you, wherever you want to start. So were they, were, those, were
1: they much bigger? I mean, right now they're four to eight feet on average. You know, obviously they were a lot bigger. But is there records of that, of finding just some... Well,
3: that's, that's a good question. That's a great question that I've tried to answer. But I'm po- fortunate with a fossil record. None of them... So you're right, they get about um, seven feet. I think IDSA has it at 90 inches, four length uh, is the largest recorded. But in a fossil record, there were some that were like three feet, two feet. But fossil record... So there could have been, mm-hmm. but... If there wasn't a fossil find. of it, yeah, 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 we get pieces of it. It's so hard to find one of a fossil record of their ancestors in one piece, let alone pieces. You mostly find pieces of them in fragments. So they may have that one. I don't know the answer to that question. Is we don't there, know. Maybe someday we'll get lucky. Is there is fossils, there
2: enough historical data to say if they're trending smaller or larger in in terms of evolution? I wouldn't
3: say I could argue that argue that either because the ones that have been found have been smaller. I don't know if they were just somehow they were preserved better. So um, right. unfortunately, the size data is really limited. They've all been like like three three feet or smaller in the, in the the ancestors. So, but that doesn't mean they maybe they're up to ten feet long. Who knows? You know, yeah. we just haven't found that fossil yet. So, yeah.
4: Yeah. It, it maybe someday
3: be, we'll find that.
2: But. It could be like you know we have we have all the T rexes we have may just be really tall for their their species and they're actually more like six feet tall.
3: I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe we get lucky and find, Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just find, find, find the one Shaquille O'Neal of all of them,
2: right? Yeah, exactly. And
3: that's what we assume that they're all that
2: big. But yeah, let, let's but, talk um, eyes, though.
3: Oh, yeah, that's what everyone... Yeah, especially with the, the, the fishing part there. So first of all, I want to talk about, um, before getting get into the colors, but yeah, yeah, Megalops, they were named very well, large large eye. They have they have incredible visual sensitivity in their eyes. So talk first Talk first about the light so they have um they're really good at capturing light they, they excel in, in nighttime and in low light conditions in fact they have this taped them in their eye like a reflective tape in the back of their eye so it maximize the light going in and out of their eye like one of the tricks we'd use in south florida here we're checking out a canal as well we'll use flashlights you know to look around because their eye will their eyes will reflect so if you want to say there's a canal, especially if it's clear water, you can go out and wow. shine a light in your eyes will reflect reflect the light.
2: So does it look like it when it when a deer is in your headlights, is it the same kind of reflection?
3: Yeah, or? I think so, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. It glow there, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it gives them excellent visibility in low light conditions. So essentially in and they can see the in those low light conditions like nighttime and in shadows and stuff, they can see the prey better than the prey can see them. And you'll see it in, in Everglades and around Nightfish and Biscayne Bay. They'll be hanging in the shadow line of the mangroves, just because they can see better in there than the other than the prey can. Or, it, or in the shadow line of the bridges, too. Sometimes, especially at, at night, you'll see them. If there's a big dock light, they'll be in the shadow area there. Just because they can see the prey better than the prey can see them. So they're really good at seeing light in there, especially at nighttime. Hmm. And also, if they're the, their vision is really focused more in the, um, the the upward and forward regions of their of their right in front of them essentially. And I'm sure you've always in in Florida you hear the guides say, you know, put the put the fly in front of them. Um, and they really that's what their best vision is in front of them and, and upward because they actually they'll feed slightly upward. They'll open that huge bucket mouth and and feed that way and mm-hmm. i say that as opposed to like like a rabbit where the um where the vision is really designed to be all around you know because it mm-hmm. needs to see that prey you behind can them their eyes kind of
1: them. their eyes kind of sit right on the top of their head almost so like what you're saying and totally yeah, makes sense. you're right you're right that, that too yeah and that yeah, acuity yeah. that front for that front forward
2: vision acuity is is indicative of like any predator right on the planet they that's they all have that trait in common
3: you're right, you're right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. But always keep in mind yeah, the, the closer you can put the fly in front of them that center, the better they'll the better they'll see it. So
1: I have a really so. important question. How come every time I land my fly in front of a tarpon that looks like it's going to eat my fly or is feeding, he comes and looks at it and then just turns away? <laughs> what that what's going <laughs> no, on they're, like? There's supposed to be fish that <laughs> eat my fly, but how come they're so persnickety? <laughs>
3: Yeah, yeah, that 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 I can't answer that one. I mean, that one could be you. Know, maybe you're flying. Maybe, maybe you're some matching hatch. You know, it's maybe the Indian, they, not the Arab. Maybe. <laughs>
4: yeah,
3: yeah, that one. That one. That's a tough question to answer. But I wouldn't give up. I would still try to put it in front of him when he can. Right. But the um, but not thing that's really interesting about their eyes and and, and fish have this in general is they have stem cells in their eyes. so their color vision will change throughout their throughout their life. As opposed to us, right, when we're born, like, six months, I think our color vision is fixed. And it's just whatever colors you see when you're six months old, those are the colors you're going to see for the rest of your life. Because we live in one, you know, one environment just, just out, out in the yeah. air. But in fish, and, and you guys probably too, in, like, salmon over there in, in California, you know, they the river visibility is very different than the ocean visibility. So their color vision will change. And same with tarpon; so they'll actually... When they're really young, they'll they'll swim back in these like these stagnant, like low visibility, high turbidity creeks and and areas like that. And the, really, their their vision there is they're they're really good at green and blue. Their their vision really focuses on the greens and the blue. And then when they get to about eight years old, they they ex- expand their their habitat, their home range. They they move out from there and they. They move off to nearshore areas and offshore areas, so their visibility will will change. So instead of just um, the green and blue visibility, when it gets about eight years old, which is about 40 inches fork length, <clears throat> excuse me, then they'll they'll still have a green visibility, not as not as not as much, not as much of a spectrum in green. But they still have some green visibility, but they'll their their blue visibility will expand. They'll have visibility for purple and then UV light, which is really interesting because we we can't see UV light. But tarponkin, when they get to that 40 inches at eight years old, they, they move into those clear waters, which we have in, in Florida, because those clear waters have very high densities a very high abundance of UV light. So it's still not clear exactly why they, they have that. I have uh, Some people say, well, some, some fish can you know reflect UV lights and maybe help them see prey. I personally believe it's if you go into these, these clear waters where this UV light is very, very abundant. And then let's say you have a crab that is essentially blocking the, that UV light, so it gives you really good visibility for, for like for example, like small crab items. So you can see that silhouette of crab. Otherwise, and maybe maybe that crab would blend in with with the background better, or the small fish would blend in. But since it's it's blocking that UV light, and there's UV light all around it, it really helps them focus in that silhouette, so they can see those small fish, those
1: hmm.
3: small crabs, and and here flies as it, well.
1: It makes me think of like a high contrast photo or something like that. You know, and you crank mm. up yeah, the contrast yeah, yeah, on a yeah. photo, just giving it a little bit more detail. Hey, Mike,
2: um, you you mentioned stem cells in their eyes, and we're talking about over time those. Uh, it sounds like the eye kind of like optimizes for the conditions, visually optimizes for the yeah, conditions yeah. that it's in. Um, Can you describe, explain why stem cells are in the eye in the first place? Like what's, what's the advantage of having stem cell, you know, as part of in in the eye in terms of the the anatomy. But then I also want to understand like how long it takes for that, that, that fish to basically re-engineer their, their eye, the anatomy of their eye to adapt to those, those light conditions.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well I think it's there because they live, you know, in different habitats, whether it's a salmon in a river going to the ocean or a tarpon going from a, a stagnant um canal or stagnant creek out to the ocean. Just they they need that to be able to adjust to the different visibility, the different amounts of light penetrating the surface. Um for example, when you're back in that creek there there's gonna be very there's gonna be almost no UV light. Um there'll be a lot of green water, a lot of green visibility there. So really they have that to help them adjust to those different habitats because um, of the different light penetration in the different areas where they live. So, now so in terms of timing, I don't think it's, you know, it's certainly not overnight. You know, the visual, well, I think it is a slow change, but this happens over over years. So they'll spend, in fact, like to, to go back to uh, tarpon, like when they, they first they, they, they spawn offshore, way off shore, and then um, they swim inshore. Those coastal habitats, and I can talk about the offshore in a little bit. But anyway, those they'll spend the first three years of their life in those those stagnant bodies of water. So I think those the that visibility, those stem cells, the colors that they see, those greens and those blues. That's then we they start. I don't think it changes overnight. Again, kind of they're going to have that for 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 years there because they'll spend what the first three years of their life in that habitat, and there's a reason for that too. It gives them a big advantage. They, they go back in there because they can they can air breathe. So they can go back in those stagnant canals with very little, very little oxygen, and yet there are fish that, <coughs> excuse me, that can live off very little oxygen, like mullet, killifish. So there's prey for them to eat. But then when they get to about three years old, twenty five inches, I think you know they're getting bigger. They just need to find more more prey species. So then they they're move to a variety of habitats. So then their eyes will change again. But I would think it would be more in the scale of, of weeks or months for that, for that change. It's not going to be an overnight change for them to adjust to that new habitat as they move to inshore areas. And then when they move even further, they get about 40 inches fork length in eight years. It's even further, the more nearshore and offshore habitats. So even more, um, then they'll get into, like I said, the, um, the, the purples and the UV light and all that. Yeah. So again, I, would think, I think the change is in the scale of weeks and months.
2: Yeah, the... The stem cell thing's interesting. It's the first time we've been told about this, as far as I can recall. Um, do you do you know of anyone or any any companies that are using those stem cells out out of fish eyes uh, for commercial purposes? Do you know?
3: I don't. I don't. I know. I heard some University of Michigan. I think was trying to look into that, um, but I never followed up or heard any publications on that. But yeah, if it could be applied for other things, yeah, yeah. I don't know.
1: It's a whole nother episode, but.
2: It's
3: it's
2: yeah. cool. Um, so we talk well,
1: ta- talk about the the you were going into it a little bit and um, you know as the salmon will be born you know lay eggs into a, a river and then they hatch into alvins and go out into the ocean and come back. Kind of explain that same lifestyle for uh, in the tarpon world. How do I don't even know what they do? Where are they? So they spawn off. Oh yeah yeah gotcha gotcha yeah yeah
3: yeah yeah. So so way offshore we're talking. I mean. Way it could be. I mean, I'm here over in the uh, West Coast of Florida. I mean, probably over over 100 miles out in there. And then, and there's some interesting research done in the 70s that looked at that that larvae. So when they they go offshore, they spawn, they hatch from the egg. There's some research. How when do they? they first co-
1: well, the sorry egg. to interrupt you. How, do they? Are they free spawners? Sure. Do they free spawn? He just wants the fish porn part. Like, what? <laughs> how do they? Do they lay eggs?
2: <laughs> or do they carry their babies in their bellies? Do they carry them in their mouth? So all like, that stuff.
3: Big. <laughs> just big, big aggregation of tarpon. In fact, you've seen them. I've been fortunate to see them too. Like, you'll see them if you're when I was in the keys, they'll move offshore. You're um, looking out there for, for dolphin fishing out there, and you'll see big aggregations of them. And I don't want fly to them or a hooked in any luck, but they'll be in big aggregations. They'll move offshore, and then they'll they'll be moving. And then we saw with the satellite tagging, because we had that depth sensor, they'll go over 200, 200, 300 feet deep. So they make these short dives down, and I'm not clear exactly why that's a lot of hypothesis but anyway they'll make these they'll go way offshore dive deep and make these these spawning runs I don't know if it helps with the eggs or maybe those lower um, mortality down there but anyway then they'll make these deep dives release their eggs they'll do it within within a day too. they they'll move offshore spawn and then come back hmm. but I was going but the, the reason they go offshore there some studies done in the 70s look at when they first hatch from the egg they can't osmoregulate. meaning when they when they're larvae they can't adjust for changes in salinity. So they need to have a very stable salinity environment. Mm. And that's exactly what you have offshore. So the first stage of their leptocephalus they need a very stable salinity environmental so that you have to go hundred miles to see that off of the Tampa area. But in the Keys you want to go about maybe about eight to, more like maybe ten eight to ten miles offshore. They don't need to go as far to get on that Gulf Stream, that very stable offshore water. But they'll they'll spawn off there, and he's leptocephalus. That's their what their larvae is called. It's uh, uh, it's, an, it's an eel. It, it really is. It they share the same same uh, family grouping as, as eels and bonefish. Yeah, so are uh, uh, similar to them. But uh, order um, as the um, the bonefish and and the eels. So they have a an eel like larvae, which is really designed to swim. It's a very clear, transparent eel looking larvae. They just swim, swim, swim. So they'll swim shore in you know, the coastal habitats, and then they'll seek. Then they'll by they'll be in different stages of the of the larvae, so they can regulate, They can go in those back in those creeks if the if the tide changes and so many changes, they'll be fine. But they'll actually will seek those stagnant bodies of water with low oxygen because the sharks can't get them in there. You know, the a lot of these are, a lot of these other species cannot cannot penetrate those waters, so they can't go after them. So and then they can air breathe, so they don't need to have high oxygen levels. They can air breathe and survive off other fish like mull and killifish. They can also survive in low oxygen waters. So they'll go back to those little stagnant bodies there, and, and and that's one of the things you know. For for juniors, if you're looking for them, you go look for these these stagnant nasty creeks back there. But you'll find tarpon in there, mm-hmm. and they'll spend about the first three years of their life in there, on which is about 25 inches fork length. Then you know, then they'll uh, move out. I think they eventually they just need to move out. They're bigger. They need more prey. They need more, you know, food. They got to branch out, so they will move out. And then they'll spend the next three to
0: three to eight years
3: of their life in, in nearshore habitats. And then when they get about eight years, which is about forty inches fork length, that's when they're sexually mature. And then they'll move offshore and and with the spawning aggregations again and start to cycle all over again.
2: Gotcha. And how much time has passed cycle. in that in that whole life history? How much time has
3: passed? So I'd say about eight years. So so wow. eight years between spawning. Yeah, when they're first born, and then so until they grow up and then um, reach sexual maturity, roughly about eight years, and then they'll spawn again. So the whole whole cycle, they about an eight year cycle.
1: I I think I read something about t- that. You know, like a um, a bill or a swordfish or um, you know marlin. When they're born, they go right into eating right they they're very they start eating right away and where a tarpon it it won't right it just swims and swims and swims until yeah, it finds yeah, that spot where it wants to go right is that what i is that right
3: yeah, that leptocephalus is just designed for for swimming for movement it's it's really designed for not for not for feeding, so you're right you're right there's been some hypothesis and some different studies on that said they that leptocephalus has this real funky teeth, and some people, they'll actually use that to, um, to pierce, um, like a jellyfish, and try to suck nutrients. That's what some papers said. I don't know if it's true or not, but, but I think it's got these funky teeth, it's more like a filter, you know, so you don't get, they can breathe, their mouth is open, they're swimming fast. They're just keeping debris out of their mouth. But, but really, um, they're really designed, you're right, they're not designed for feeding. That first larvae stage is designed for swimming. You know, because they got if they're off Tampa, they're 100 miles out. They got to swim all the way inshore and find those stagnant canals, wow. stagnant bodies of water, stagnant creeks. Wow. So they gotta when, cover some when, ground.
2: When they're in transit, they're obviously burning calories. So, are, is there like a yolk sac or something that's still attached to them? Like, how? Are, what, what are they getting for sustenance when they're making that journey?
3: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. They do have a yolk sac at the beginning, but um, but. It is it's kind of amazing how they how do they get the energy to swim these large yeah. distance they're just low energy requirements and eel'cause a lot of work's been done on these and on, on eels that way on the middle of the um, Atlantic the eels the same larvae stage they'll cover you know even more miles they'll go three hundred miles you know and and so they just have very low energy requirements just swim swim, swim, that's my belief. I don't think they would get much from these they're called vorvas or things that they would suck on. I don't think they would get much nutrients from it so i think they're just designed to be very very efficient uh predator i'm sorry i'm sorry very, very efficient uh swimmers and just cover a lot of ground so it's, it's hard to believe but yeah i think that they can live months out there just swimming without without food
2: do they do they imprint on a spawning ground like say a salmon does that's a good question that's all i was gonna ask
3: yeah if they come back to the same you mean if they come back to the same spawning area yeah. Year, after year yeah uh, that's a good question with, uh 'cause cause tagging, we haven't had them enough, uh, multiple years with the satellite tag. So the other thing with tagging, the longer you leave it on the fish, the more, the less likely you're going to get it back. Meaning if it, maybe it's covered with algae or it breaks or it leaks
1: or right.
4: something
3: like that. So, so I don't, I don't know if they come back to the same
1: spawning that, area. That, the I, I think I, go ahead.
3: I was going to say, I personally think they do. I, I think that maybe they, I mean, not exactly the same spot, but I would think that the ones in the Keys, you know, they come back and they, they go to the same spawning aggregations. They go out to the Gulf Stream to the east. And the ones mm-hmm. in the Tampa area, they go back to the same spawning grounds over to the west. So mm-hmm. I think that they do. I haven't been proven yet, but I think that they do have some Do
2: you think, the you know, the other, the other thing is, like, obviously a salmon zeroes in on a river by scent. And then I'm wondering, like, because of the changing currents in the ocean and all that, scent kind of, probably not a thing and if you look at the homing pigeon um it works off the magnetic field do you think it might be that's how they're finding their way back
3: could be i haven't seen any research to prove that you meaning um if they're using scent or yeah just or basically how like do they how do
2: they spa- spatially navigate i guess is what i'm asking you know from a you know anywhere on the planet perspective how they know where how do yeah they know yeah where yeah
3: I've seen some work in Florida where larvae have used sound. The sound travels so well; Whoa. they literally can hear the, uh, the waves on the beaches or waves on the um, on the, or you know, sound on the reef and all that. But I haven't seen that proven for tarpon. I know in other uh, species of fish in Florida, the larvae have been sound has been a big factor. Hmm. But I don't know if tarpon are. Maybe they are using sound too. That's a good. That's a good question. And. This hasn't been proven yet for tarpon. So So
1: is there just one species of of that tarpon? Because when you, you, as an angler, I go to Florida, I see, you know, you can get a 200-pound tarpon there. But if you go to places like Belize, you know, further south, they tend to be a little bit smaller. You see a lot of the, um, I can't even think of the name right now, but just a lot of smaller tarpon being
3: caught. Yeah, 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 you're right. Well, there used to be 15 species of tarpon, but now there's only two. Right, so I mean, in ge- geological record, there was 15 species, but now there's, there's two. So there's the Atlantic tarpon, which that's actually the same one you see in Belize, and it's, it goes in Belize and South America. I think it's more Caribbean and and um, based, but in Gulf of Mexico and right, all that. But right. but the um but it's also the the same that Megalops atlanticus there. It's also found on the west side of Africa too. And it's really, really rare, but they have been observed as in in England and and up there, just like in um, on the uh, the west, the Western Atlantic. You know, they're they're found in Florida, but they have been found as far north as you know Maine and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So those are so in the Atlantic. That's really the, the Atlantic tarpon, the Megalops atlanticus. But there is also one the Indo-Pacific tarpon, Megalops cyprinoides, and that one has been found like in um, Australia, the Philippines. India, so, and, uh, but that one really gets about, uh, two, two feet in length. The mm-hmm. end up with Civic Tarpon. So it's not the big, you know, 90 inch root we get over here. Right. So there is a second species, but it's not nearly the size of the ones we get, um, in
1: so, the Atlantic. so the movement of these fish is based off of just, of spawning and then, and food, right? I mean, that's the only, thing that's been Yeah, moving yeah,
3: these yeah, guys yeah, around. and and temperature. So, because we have a temperature sensor on the satellite tag, in a very high correlation with seventy nine degrees Fahrenheit. So, you know, as the water, you know, they're down in South Florida during the winter, but as the warmer, you know, as summer comes and and the temperature will increase, they'll follow that temperature grade that, that seventy nine degrees Fahrenheit, and they'll go up to North Carolina and Naples, and even Virginia, even the Chesapeake, and then. Over in the, the west side of Florida, the, yeah. as the temperature increases, they'll mm-hmm. go over to the Louisiana and Texas and Alabama and stuff like that.
1: So the main migration habits of these fish is based on mainly on temperature throughout the year. So that's, yeah, why, that's yeah. why you see the main push of tarpon show up in Florida in May, June, right? Is that, is that right? Yeah,
4: yeah, so yeah.
2: If you're seeing them cra- you know, go down during the spawn, uh, down you said up to 200 feet deep, Uh, it would based on what you're saying about the 79 degree kind of like sweet spot uh, it does one would would conclude maybe that it is really temperature related because if you look at like when when tuna are crashing the surface right on and they're going after bait fish and there's you know there's birds bombing these bait fish from the top and the tuna are hitting it from the bottom those tuna have to like they they don't regulate their their body temperature internally I'm told so they they have to crash down deep to cool off um, do you think that these tarpon are basically controlling their spawn temperature zone, and that's why they're crashing down up to 200 feet deep, like you're saying?
3: I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, they, it's definitely colder down there. In fact, I'm looking at some of the data right now that we looked at. So that deep dive of 200 plus feet, it's down to um, so it's actually about 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's even be colder than they're used to. They're more at the um, 79 degrees, but. I don't know if they're. I don't know if they're doing that. Yeah, like you're saying, to control their metabolism or something like that, or maybe down there it's just very low predation. They can. They, there's a great chance for their their spawning take take place. They can avoid any predators trying to eat their eggs or whatever. So, um, um, I can't tell you tell you why they do that, but they certainly. Mm-hmm. Do withstand a colder temperature when they go, when they make that that dive down to about it looks like it's seventy one degrees Fahrenheit. That's I a good
1: rather hole that you went down though. No, I like it. I know.
2: And then my <laughs> my last my last question with with respect to the babies is: Are they eggs? Are they born in in eggs? Are they put into beds? Are they born like free in the water and they're they're out of it? They're out of their shell already and they're kind of already swimming. Um, you know, what yeah, do they free. look like when they first come out?
3: Free, free in the uh, free in the water column there, so okay. no like a- eggs on that nest or anything
2: like that. Okay. And
3: they just and look like a clear, clear uh, eel is what they look
2: like. Okay, and are you they know. are they broadcast spawners? Then is that a safe assumption? Yeah, yeah,
3: okay. yeah.
1: It's like yeah. Our, our American shad, they're supposed to be in the same family. It's a poor man's tarpon is what we call them over <laughs> here in, in um, California. But um, you know, the female will rise in the water column, spit her eggs out, and then the the males, the males will come, come in and dive right. bomb it. Yep. Come in right behind it. Um, yeah. It's interesting. It sounds like the, it's the opposite. Sounds right? like the what, chandelier what bar turpin? in Vegas. <laughs> <laughs> what do what do turpin mean? What's their diet consist of?
3: Seems like whatever they whatever they can get their mouth on. Yeah. I just mean, I, I say that as a joke because I've seen them. I flipped a uh, a cockroach off a dock one time and I saw them eat it. But um, <laughs> but really, I mean um, crabs and and um, and mullet. You know that's the other thing with, with that. So we've seen them move up and down the coast, you know, following that seventy nine degrees temperature. But they've also been a high correlation with with the mullet run or the the pogie What or, about the poala uh, worm? The menhaden run. So, oh yeah, and in the keys too. So I feel like they're you're right. The keys, the paella Pal- 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 worm. So I feel like they're very opportunistic. You know, they so like you know they'll follow this. When they're swimming up north, are they doing that? Cause they probably because they like temperature, but they certainly there's a benefit too. When they move up north, they're running these big school of menhaden, and it's great food source. But I think they're um, they're certainly not you know like one prey item species. They've they've eat a eat a range of things. you right, from the polliwa worm to the um, to crabs to to fish. So it seems like whatever. Whatever is in front of them, they'll suddenly. And I even had one eat a cockroach one time. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and do you know the, the whatever what, they can? What the koala worm? Do you know it very specifically? What I'm um like the how it hatches and yeah. what? Can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think it's kind of I've never even heard of a poala, koala worm. Part of it, it comes out of the mud, and parts of it, part of it breaks off, right? And then it comes to the surface, and it's basically swimming along the surface. Is that right? And
3: it's very. It's a big like big like. One event down, in the key is very short lived. I think it's um, only a few,
4: a few days, or, or
3: maybe like a weekend or some few days. Yeah. But it is, it's crazy. I've been I've been down at Bahia Honda down there, and it's just like they're just they're just everywhere. I mean, you see them all over the place, and, and I don't know, it's not only tarpon too. Like Ruper will be eating them, and Jacks will be eating them. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's certainly a very a great great food source. And they not. I mean, I'm mean, all net them. They're not very fast, so they're easy to catch, but. But, yeah, that's a big big blow-up. And I'm sure there's other areas. Bahia Honda and the Keys is a popular place for them. Um, and people will, you know, take the moon phase and target it just right and all that. Right, but, uh, right. But...
4: But, uh, yeah, it's that a, one I, I
3: definitely like to do a, again. Definitely like to take advantage. It could be some really simple tarpon fishing if you can time it right. <laughs> right.
1: Well, that's a, a friend of mine goes there a lot, and he he talks about you know seeing thousands of fish, you know hundreds of fish sitting, you know just smashing these worms when they come out, and then um, all of a sudden uh, the hatch it just disappears, and so do the fish. You know they were there, you know taking advantage of it, and then once that food source is gone, they seem to they seem to disappear. Um,
3: yeah, they everyone has to like move on and move on to mullet or crabs, or whatever. It's like mm-hmm. you know, the party's over. Yeah.
1: <laughs> How fast do tarpon are known to swim?
3: I don't know. I have never seen any um data any, on uh, What's it called? Any 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 yeah speed speedometer on it or anything like that? But they definitely have that forked tail, which is designed for fast, sustained swimming speed. So they did. so they they could um cover some ground but i don't know anything exact. i can't exactly predict their their exact speed do they, they not as fast as a, as a billfish but they right they some speed to them
2: well they <laughs> well they uh do they practice cannibalism
3: <laughs> that's a good question i bet you they would if they could yeah I, I think but unfortunately the um or i guess fortunately you know the the real small ones are way up in the, the creeks and you might find a, an adult creeping there occasionally but they're more um um, out in more of the open areas more. Um, so I, I, I bet you they, they – I wouldn't put it past them. You know, if there was a juvenile by a big carpenter, I wouldn't – I don't see why I wouldn't take advantage of a well, I think the the occurrence of it is rare because um, the juveniles go way, way up in those creeks. But it's certainly a, a possibility. I wouldn't – I believe it would, it would happen or could happen. You know, you're talking about the, the, what they eat, too. I saw a show years ago where they were actually the um, – Tupper juvenile alligators, so
4: Whoa, <laughs> they'll wow. certainly
3: eat whatever. If, if they're in front of them, they'll certainly eat them.
1: Somebody's yeah. going to try a gator popper after this episode. <laughs> well, based on what you said about the green and blue standing out, I mean, if, if you're listening, your your light bulb should be going off. and am like, oh, so I need some green and, and blue flies to be fishing, right? I mean, and well, that's it, let's talk about gear. One of the most common flies you see is that what that green. What do they call it? Mike, yeah, you?
3: Chartreuse area, yeah, yeah, the yeah.
1: Chartreuse, um, like frog pattern or whatever, I forget mm. what do they even call it, but, um, I so Is the, that tarpon toad, tarpon toad, thank you, yep, yeah, yeah, um, what, in fact, go ahead,
3: I was going to say what I find funny about that. So, I helped this guy at Ford of Technology, Scott Taylor, that did the work on these, so I would give him um, some eyes of tarpon and he, he studied him. But this was published about ten years ago. But what I find funny is, you know, 20 years ago, I remember seeing a um, a guide fly box, and I remember looking at it, and there's, there was greens, it was blues, it was purples, you know. I mean, I feel like they kind of keyed on the guides in the Florida Keys keyed on this long before we knew what their visibility was, right? So, <laughs> what their vision was. So I find it is interesting. No, that's well, one coming. Yeah, I. I but one thing I like to focus on, I like the chartreuse because, one, it, it's good for the juveniles. It's good for the adults. They know, I know they see it well, so it gives me you know, personal confidence. And also, I like the chartreuse because I see it well, too. right? Yeah. You want to know where your fly is when you cast it. That's so I think right. it's a double-edged sword. I've used purples, and I've used... But I find, especially in dirty water, I can't have trouble seeing the purple fly. I want to be able to see it. Mm-hmm. So if I know the fish is, I know if I'm close to it. So anyway, the big advantage, the green, the chartreuse, the Tarping and see it, and and you can see it too. Do you know the so name Steve,
1: Steve? Huff. Do you know that name?
3: Oh yeah, yeah. I met him a few times. Yeah, yeah
1: he's one of the. Would you call him the Godfather of targeting tarpon on the fly? One of them, at least. One
3: of them, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah definitely one of the founding fathers. Yeah. Right. <laughs>
1: I heard story. You know. You, 40 years ago, you know, finding tarpon, you know, laid up thou, you know, he, he would say that there was, you know, he couldn't tell 5,000 could have been 50,000, you know, just tarpon all laid up. And then all of a sudden a, a big female would come flying out of the water and smack the top, right? Boom. And then it would immediately cause a daisy chain, right? All these fish would go into a, a basically a, a circle and they'd swim in this circle, what they call daisy chaining. And that's when they had the opportunity to go in there with a fly and put Stick them right, left, and right. You would pull one off of those. You could cast out in front of them, let the fly sink, and then you see that big one coming around the corner, right? Start stripping your fly, yeah. Pull them off of the chain, and and there you go. And that and that's they found out that real quick that this was a pattern. So I heard this story about him going out with a bag of oranges, right? Makes sense, Florida, right? Whatever, going out bag of oranges, throwing them as high as he could up in the air. They'd come down, splash, boom! Instantly put these tarpon into a daisy chain, and then they go boom, boom, boom! Catch because a the of, sound would kind of trigger yeah, them. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's pretty cool. Anyway, tarp, that's what's kind of. Why do they do that daisy chain, uh, Mike? What, what's the, well, what's the are, story are behind are they corralling that? baitfish?
3: Well, you're saying how yeah, you spook them and they go into the, like this, this this mode, and and um, and I think it is a the defensive behavior. Now you can see with the case that Steve Huff was talking about; they certainly will feed too and occasionally but there was there was actually a paper back in the eighties where they um they thought they were spawning. So they would literally drag a net around um the daisy chain and they, they didn't get any, any eggs or anything like that, but it was a that's what they originally thought. But I think it's just it's a it's it's a wall of I mean you got you those big reflective scales if you're a predator. It's a wall of reflective scales, a wall of eyeballs, they have excellent visibility and a wall of waterline too. And other fish do it too. I mean, you've seen I've seen koi do it in ponds. Mm-hmm. Uh, jacks will do it. If you ever watched um, uh, Blue Planet? You'll see big species of uh, I'm sorry, big schools of jacks do it. But I I do think it is a defensive behavior, and I, I also don't think it's very spawning because in Biscayne Bay there's some juveniles. They'll do it too. The juveniles will do it. So it's like it's it's certainly these are small tarpon that are well below. The size of maturity, so they're definitely immature fish, and they're they're circling as well. But I do think it's a type of reflective. I'm sorry, um, defensive behavior, mm-hmm. uh, protective behavior. I've even seen the keys where I've have been you know staked up, and they'll come a wall of them, and then like they kind of like sense the boat, or maybe it's like, my bad casting, but then they'll mm-hmm. they'll go into a circle there right in front of you. It's like they know something's up, you know. They they hear the boat or sense the boat, or or they hear my cast or whatever. But um.
1: But uh, well,
4: I thought that it is thought very
3: neat really
1: behavior. Yeah, I thought that story was interesting because to me, a, a laid-up tarpon, which they um, said were hard to catch, to me, a laid-up tarpon is one that you want to target, right? It's sitting there. It's ready. If you can get the fly close enough or right on its nose, you, you have a really good chance of, of eating. In fact, I have a very fond memory of casting to a laid-up tarpon and stripping and stripping and stripping and it chasing it all the way down and missing it at the boat and I kind of like fell back and you were down, down like, to your underwear before like, it committed I was like oh what the heck just happened and out of nowhere a different tarpon came over and ate the fly right off the boat and that was the first one I ever landed that so <laughs> when
2: when you guys say laid up tarpon it's just a stationary kind of tarpon that's sitting there yep okay yeah, yeah. Never, even see
3: that, I don't know if you saw it, Nick, but you'll see like their dorsal fin will be sticking up. Their tail will be sticking up. Like it's like they're like just resting there.
1: So oh. I, I just remember the guy, target too. I, the guy got that? super excited when he saw it. He's like, Oh, right there, right there. It's laid up. It's laid up. And it, I had the wind in my back and I laid out a pretty long cast and it just went, it landed right. It couldn't have been better. You know, I was like, Oh, this is it. This is it. And of course, <laughs> you know, it happened a completely different way than I imagined. But um, Yeah. I've never seen them daisy chain like that. I've, I see them cruising, right. They're usually in like five to eight feet of water. That's where you're targeting them and they're cruising around um, or laid up like in the mangroves and um, close to to shore. And I've, I've even seen them rolling around in um, brackish water and then uh, rivers in, in Costa Rica. It's just a, just a, such a diverse fish. It makes you, it's no wonder that they haven't changed much, you know? In the last 18 million. Yeah, they years. got it
3: right. It was, it was 100 plus years, million years of evolution. They they figured it out.
1: <laughs> They've optimized over a long period of time. Yeah. So, so yeah. what what is the season, like, Mike, typically for for tarpon over there in Florida? Sounds like it's a it changes from um, from Naples down to the April, keys. I'd say
3: April April to um, April all the way to September. You know. So, you, but mostly I'd say most of it is from May to uh, May to June from what I've seen, you know, and you still get them in July and, and you can still get them in, in August and even September. So, but it's funny, all these people, you know, so we started doing this satellite tagging and people are like, Oh, well, you know, there's two groups of fish. There's migratory fish and there's, um, resident fish. Residence, yeah. So, so we were like, well, maybe, you know, trying to get open mind, let's tag these fish. And we never, we tagged me around. We never saw a resident fish. I think, People are seeing these fish but they're now they do come back to the same areas. i n- no doubt about that. We've seen them with the tagging, but it's like these fish are they still move. Even the ones like for example, um Robbie's is a popular place in Almorada where you can feed the tarpon and we tagged some fish um uh probably about maybe like five miles from there, put a satellite tag. And then someone from Robbie's called us, like, Hey, there's a fish with a satellite tag and it we saw it there for a few days and it disappeared. And then, then it came back like a month later. Like, they, these resident fish, I think people think they're resident, but they, they still move around. You know, we never saw fish that stayed in, like, the same area year-round. So there's a lot of more mixing going on than I think people think they are. So I don't really think there is a resident fish. Now, with the juveniles, though, we have seen um, – there were some other people did some work um, – by currently the people with the Bonefish Tarpon Trust, where they've done it in, in creeks and stuff like that. Now, those will stay in there. They will stay in those same areas. But, but when the cold comes in then they disappear, and I think they have to go. They have to go seek warmer water. Warmer so maybe water those night. fish, the, the juveniles, there are resident fish that are living in those creeks until they get big enough to venture out. But the adult fish that we tagged with satellite tags, I'm talking like an 80 pound or bigger, you know, we never saw resident fish. They constantly moved, and we tagged over 200 of them. So wow. we didn't see that resin fish migratory. To me, they're all migratory. They mix and they'll get different areas, but yeah. but they all move around.
1: <laughs> I, I do want to talk gear, to even the
3: panhandling ones.
1: So. Yeah, we uh, when we were in um, down in Costa Rica, there was talks about um, the tarpon showing up on the Pacific side, and mainly because of the Panama Canal, they were actually able to use that to get to the other side, into the Pacific. Have you heard anything about that? Lately, or
3: I have, I have. I think there's, and I have heard reports. I think there's still, you know, low uh, numbers over there. But it is interesting. They're, they're hitching a ride to the main, to the Panama Canal, right, and, and moving over. So, yeah, maybe they'll be competing with roosterfish someday. I don't know.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. It's I'd rather
3: have a rooster. I like tarpon, but I'd rather keep the rooster fish in the beaches. But it's such a different fish. But that's maybe, ki- I'm hoping the rooster fish come over here.
1: That's right. right. Yeah. <laughs>
3: Send them our way. You know, from the Pacific to the Atlantic.
1: It's so. just interesting that there's not a lot of inf- information. It's kind of like our steelhead. You know, the salmon are are the the gateway to all the other species in our rivers and and ocean. And so they're really well studied. But not a lot of people know what what, what do the steelhead do when they got to the ocean. And it sounds like it's, the tarpon are kind of treated the same way. They're, they're, you know, you don't eat them, right? They're really bony and and oily and, um, so they're not really good to eat. And so it's probably the main reason why they haven't been studied all that much.
3: Yeah, you're right, you're right. As compared to other like snappers and groupers, you're right, they get a lot more attention because of their commercial value and their right. Yeah, yeah, you're right. right. But that's changed a lot. There's a lot of research in the seventies, eighties, but in I mean and I gotta give a lot of credit to the Bonefish Tarpon Trust. They've kinda really got that going too for funding for tarpon and bonefish and permit as well, but tarpon research.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, I did also want to comment on, you know, the, the the real quick the the fishing form the the hooking them. It's difficult. You know, It's you do all this work, like you are saying, you saw a light up harping, and then you get the bite, and then a lot of times the, the hook will just pull right out. So if you look at their mouth, they actually have plates in the roof of their mouth, and their and their tongue, they have a very stiff tongue, so actually will throw out these big gills and suck in the prey or suck in your fly, and they'll crush it with, with their tongue and the plates in their mouth. Wow. So they're not, it's not like some big fleshy mouth. It's actually like a, like a hard, kind of, people talk about like a concrete mouth. So Really, I mean, the only place to really hook it is the corner of the mouth, unless yeah. you unhook hook it, of course. But but it makes it, that's also part of the challenge right, not only getting to eat, but how do you hook them? When they have these big plates in their mouth that are, the hook will just slide right through it. So you're hoping to get the corner of the mouth or, or somewhere else on the lip, but there's really not, not many areas to hook them, so that makes it a lot more challenging. They're all the, part of the fight, though, part of the catch.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. And when you... I've heard guides even say kind of almost like you want to wait for them to kind of turn a little bit after they've inhaled your fly so that you can get that pull right back into the corner of, of their mouth. And you see a lot of people, I mean, and I was yelled at multiple times because I kept wanting to trout set, (laughs) right? I wanted to lift my rod and, and hook the fish that way. And I just kept pulling flies out. And, um, finally I started strip setting where I'm just stripping, stripping until it comes tight, you know, and then you, you don't stop there. When that thing runs and takes off, you'll hit it again. You know, like it, it, if it calms down a little Absolutely, bit, you'll, yeah. You'll drop yeah. your rod to the right, down low, and and use the line and, and rod and really just dig into it to try to get that hook to bury a little bit deeper. Because of what you just said, those plates and the hard hard mouths are are really hard to stick a fly into. Um,
3: yeah, and then they'll jump out of you know they'll shake their heads. So if it's not in there good, they're gonna fling that thing right out.
1: So, and that's the funnest thing yeah, about tarpon fishing, right? Is is jump. It, and you don't call it hooking them. What do you call it? Jump, jumping them, right? You you jump. Yeah. You <laughs> jump to tarpon. Um, so and baby baby tarpon was what I was trying to think of earlier. Are really fun to do that with. If you know, again, if you've never done it or. If anybody's never, listening is never it's just such an awesome experience to go into the mangroves and catch some of those even smaller tarpon and 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 fight them because they just come flying out of the water. It's just a fantastic fish to to go after. Um, what do you so yeah. as far as yeah. rod and what do you like to to throw for them, Mike?
3: Well, I like when I'm going for the juveniles. Yeah, in an A weight, you uh-huh. know, a floating line. Look for the juveniles and looking for them rolling and just do a gentle. I throw a little little small little chartreuse flying and. And move it around there, and then but for the bigger ones, I use a 12 weight if I'm fishing on the the beaches or the oceanside areas there. And and again, a f- floating line, and then try to just put it in front of them, and just try to slide it in front of them. I think I've heard some guides explain it well. It's like it's like you know you're uh, like trying to put a little toy in front of a cat. You know, you're just trying to put it right in front of them. But but so mm-hmm. I just fish really an 8 weight for the small guys, mm-hmm. floating line, and then a 12 weight for the for the big guys yep. but I really prefer the, the small guys because I still want a, a 12 weight and I've also been fortunate when we're doing some tagging down in Belize got the fortunate travel down there but some of those areas if the fishing was slow you know um, we would use a sinking line and cover channels but that it wears you out with a 12 weight yeah, but sometimes right. you gotta do it or else you gotta, for the, if that's what the fish are if that's how you're catching them it's what you gotta, that's a popular
1: so way in Costa do.
2: Rica and the rivers to fish for them is you it mostly them? on the top then you guys are fishing floating lines for these guys mostly yeah, sight floating. Yeah, when they're up on the yeah, surface okay.
3: and all that, but yeah. when we're fishing the channels then we just use a sinking line, and right. I call it a dredging. You know, it's not not the most enjoyable way to fish. I prefer to you know be up on the surface, but um, but that goes back to um, the little. I can talk about that. the um, the The big tarpon, you know, the, the guides and all that. They'll um, they'll go out there at, at sunrise, or they'll be out there before sunrise, and there's there's an advantage to that because they that the oxygen levels is is lowest you know so you got photosynthesis right, right. It's generating all this oxygen but then in nighttime it it stops so the oxygen level of the water will decrease so but at sunrise you know one so they'll, they're rolling all tonight but you can't see them right unless there's lights whatever but but at sunrise you have the advantage where the oxygen level is low so they're going to roll and you
1: they're can see them they're showing themselves yeah so
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a big event. So a lot of these tarpon guys, and when we try to get out there too early, they'll, they'll roll to give themselves away because the oxygen level is so low, they're going to roll to get more oxygen, show them where they are. But midday, you know, and that photosynthesis kicks in, the oxygen level kicks in again, so you may not they, – they won't roll. They may not roll at all. So then you can't find them at all. So it's a big advantage to, to spotting them in the, by getting out there the first light there to look for them rolling. You know where they are. At least then you know where they are. And then you can cast to the rolling fish if the light's still pretty dark.
1: So. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. I've never heard anybody talk about that with, um, with the oxygen level in the water. That's well, really we cool. we did
2: cover the dissolved oxygen on lakes, right? And, it, and it's always depleted. At, like you're saying, like yeah. right at like four or five in the mornings, it's it's bottomed out, mm-hmm. and then photosynthesis kicks
1: in. Mm-hmm. Wind kicks up, all that stuff. So with the yeah. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, twelve weights are it's again it's weird that the big fish are always over by in florida and then i guess the bigger ones in africa but um you know in, in belize you can get away fishing with like a, a nine weight because the fish are a little bit smaller you know you can use a nine or a ten weight mm-hmm. over there and, and it's still a lot of floating lines um and then like a 30 pound bite leader or tippet, mm-hmm. right they have their talk, about, and you could talk about that too mike the gill plate super sharp right on their side
3: on the yeah outside. yeah yeah I definitely use uh, yeah later and um I like to use sixty but a lot of my friends use forty just to get the, to get more bite but uh but you're right, you're right if you um if and and also their 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 teeth um their gi point isn't as much as like a, isn't as sharp as like a snook but the but the teeth they they have really tiny little sandpaper teeth you like, you don't like
4: of, right
3: yeah. So if that fly comes out, I mean they'll they'll chew through a, a leader, so they they certainly will rough it up. In fact, a lot of times, I mean um, you'll see them hit it, and you know the fly just pulls right out, and you reel it in, and then there's there's your fly, and then this is all scuffed up because of the, the sandpaper teeth just you know, shredded it on your waiter there. So you'll, you'll know the tarp in there cause it's all, you know, and somebody just took some sandpaper and rubbed it all on your, your leaders all all frayed there. So right. yeah, they'll definitely yeah. chew through it there. So,
1: yeah, a lot of the
4: yeah, uh,
3: use some type of
1: waiter. A lot of the guys over there are using like one piece, 11 weights too, because they're just a little bit, like you said, casting a 12 weight sucks. And so they're using a lighter <laughs> rod, but a one piece to, to do it, which is pretty cool. They're fun, fun to, um, to cast and, and fish with what,
2: what's the advantage of a one piece over like a, a three or four
1: you don't have as many uh feral you know there's no ferals it's not going to come apart there, is that the there's concern? no there's no ferals or really weak points in that rod right so you can right. you can reef on them uh, it's just a, a sm- smooth casting rod. You know, what's reef mean again <laughs> just for folks that don't know what the heck you're talking just about. just pull hard you can pull hard on a fish and not worry about a feral popping on you or breaking or just coming apart and then breaking the rod roger that Um, obviously if you're traveling over there, you need a four piece to, you know, to take with you. But a lot of times some of those guides will have a a one piece rod. They're pretty cool uh, to check out. Uh, Do you find that the tarpon are are spooky when you're casting at them?
3: Mike? Yeah. 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 Well, I guess I'll spend some, um, uh, the visibility of the water and and, and like I don't I, I feel like I have an advantage back in like Everglades and the, the lower visibility, visibility water but um but oh yeah that's something, in fact um sometimes on the on the ocean side on um vision of beaches and there'll be boats lined up and I feel like by the time they get, you know, they're moving down on the coast. By the time they get to you, you can cast to them, but I feel like your odds of hookup are very low. I feel like they come pre-spooked, right? They already mm-hmm. <laughs> they already know something's up or something's harassing them or the boat before them, chase them or, mm-hmm. or you know, cast a fly to them. And uh, so they they certainly, they certainly can certainly turn off, you know. <laughs>
1: We've talked about it on <laughs> the show really a, a little bit, is using uh, clear floating lines um, as just to, you know, as an advantage for yeah, the Yeah, I'm,
3: I'm, I'm a big fan of that too. That way I got, I got my chartreuse fly so I can see it. Yep. So, cause that's the other thing with, yeah, with the clear fly. I'm like, where clear line is like, where's my fly? I don't know. But, um, I think, I think it does give me an advantage, you know, that instead of some big, you know, brown line or, or green line on top of them, you know, you can kind of blend it in more. I am a fan of the, the clear floating line, what, but I always try to make sure when I do that, I have a really clear fly to see. So I know where my fly is.
1: What type of line is that? that you like, that clear. I like uh, the,
3: uh, Cortland one, clear one that they make.
1: Mm-hmm. So you know, that, so I think Monic was making one, one, two for a little while. I don't know if they're still, still around or still making it or not. Um, yeah, real quick. I wanted to ask you the bone, you did some studies on bonefish. Um, there's, there used to be, and I, I know there still is a lot of bonefish, uh, over in Florida, but, um, what uh, what happened to them? because I've heard that they've kind of disappeared and, and and then a little bit about the red tide that you guys
3: are dealing with over there sure, sure, sure well um I think I think the Florida Keys gets a, a bad rap for for bonefish uh, they had a um, big fish kill in two thousand ten um but I mean, there's still a healthy population on there, but I think you know um if you want if you want if you want numbers of bonefish you I'd go to the, go to the Bahamas. I mean, you definitely um, Bahamas. You don't have, uh, I guess, trying to explain this it. so as much of a diverse food web as you do in in the Florida Keys. I mean, you go along a a flat in the Florida Keys, there's so many different um, species of fish. Where in the Bahamas, it's more of a, a narrow food web over there. So bonefish occupy a much wider niche over there. But I would, but I personally, I my favorite place to fish for bonefish is the Florida Keys because you just have big fish over there. In fact, there's a. I did some work in my dissertation there. Their diet will shift when they're young. They'll they'll eat the the crabs and shrimp. But when they get big enough, they'll switch over to fish and toadfish is a big prey item for them. And that will, and I and you can see it when they start switching over to toadfish. There, the, the growth curve there's a bump in the growth curve. They they grow bigger. So. There's bigger fish over there, and there's and there's there's evidence to support that. Like seventy percent of the IJFA records for bonefish come from the Florida Keys. So I, I feel like um, I know the, the the population did take a dip with the um, the code, the big cold kill in in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is some there is you know a good level of fishing fishing effort down there, and there is a fishing mortality. You know, they're like you release a bonefish, or maybe a shark eats it when you eat it, or when you release them. I estimate about ten percent fishing mortality. There is fishing mortality. I mean, of course, you don't want the fish to die, but you can take steps to reduce it. Keep the fish in the water, and and um and try to you know release some areas without sharks and stuff like that. But but I think the I think the, I guess the take home message for the Florida Keys is if you want big bonefish, I don't think there's a better place on the planet. Catch them. Now, you're not going to get, you know, you probably won't get 50 shots in a day. You know, you might you might only get one shot in a day. But if you right. want a big bonefish, um, that's the place to go for them. But sure. If you want numbers, there's so many Bahamas and Christmas Island and other stuff. So, <clears throat> but when I did my assessment, so my, my last data point was 2011. So um, then I, I graduated. But anyway, the, the, the stock was not... Overfished, meaning that the population was not below a critical threshold. So now, that it, it hasn't been really overfished uh, assessed since then. But still, I would say that the stocks, the stocks, fine. As I'm saying, yes, it took a dip, but it's not an overfished population in the Florida Keys. So there's still plenty, and, and I think as they recover from the fish kill, the abundance will will come back. So but
1: um that's
4: interesting so I think
3: yeah if you want numbers go somewhere else but there certainly are big fish still there in 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 the Florida
1: Keys one I've never heard of a bonefish chasing down bait bait fish I always thought that they were kind of grass feeders you know even just kind of the way their mouths are shaped and everything that's why you see them tailing in the flats you know they're just down in there trying to get the crabs and the shrimp like you're talking about I've never heard of them chasing down bait that's that's super cool and then the mortality rate I didn't even think about is there is that applied to tarpon too at all is there any studies on that
3: yeah yeah i'm trying to remember what they what they were but there was there certainly is um well interesting with the yoga the research on mortality of tarpon you, you essentially it was around i think it was like five or ten percent but you you double it if you take them out of water
1: which is a new there law was, right um, you can't do it.
3: study yeah 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 so really you're right you're right that's how they why they implement that so really with with tarpon um yeah above some size but i try to recommend it for for all sizes if you can just keep them in the, in the water. So if you take them out of water, especially big tarpon, yeah, you're really going to increase the chance of, of fishing mortality. So the more you can keep them in the water, but I really I think for a big tarpon, that's better for you and the fish, right? You don't want big fish like that in your boat. And, yeah. And uh,
1: do you get out? In the, do you get and out the think, water. And, sorry, go ahead.
3: I was just saying one more thing, real quick, to point out with mortality, and keep your hands away from the gills. I know people, you know, try to. It's it's you know it's it's a natural grab where you can grab the fish and and pull it up, but but I was just going to say, real quick, you can no, no way to, to avoid mortality, and no way to keep the fish alive is really try if you can. And this probably goes for all fish, not just for tarpon.
4: Right, right, Keep your
3: hands away from the gills, and and try to just lift them up, support them by the belly, or better yet, keep them in the water. <laughs> so would you
1: would you jump into the water if it's a couple feet deep, you know, or a chest high, and hold the tarpon up in the water? Mm, no, I would not.
3: <laughs>
1: sharks, man, I hate sharks. <laughs> I don't hate sharks, but I don't See, want to I, get I, eaten.
2: I... <laughs>
3: I would. In fact, if you look at my Facebook post, that's, that's the page I have of me in about uh, three feet of water. I gently lifted it up. It was about an 80-pound tarpon that I caught. So, so yes, I would. But, what? I mean, I have a buddy on the boat looking for sharks with sure. real clear water. I did it real fast.
1: Hammer, <laughs> hammerheads. You've got to watch so. out for those hammerheads. I think they like eating tarpon.
3: No, thanks. Yeah. I'm, I'm the guy yeah, that yeah, would
2: yeah. be eating for the first time in 10 years there if I did it.
1: So, re- <laughs> real, real quick, I, I got you about an hour, but talk about um, talk about Red Tide. Um, a little bit we see it on on the national news and I, I don't know if we have you know and there might be a whole nother episode to talk about because we hear um I hear my friends talk about this huge massive freshwater lake um Okeechobee that has been basically dammed up by sugar sugarcane cane companies and so the the lack of water that is able to flush um the mangroves and and you know the stagnant water of like the mix of the salt and the fresh water all that flushing has kind of disappeared causing for just there's no biomass all the everything's dying inside these mangroves um at least that's what we're kind of hearing can you can you talk about that just real quick
3: yeah yeah it was a disaster 2018 and this was this last year and um i spent most of my life in in miami but then um i moved over to tampa area uh years ago and then it was my, my first, I've always heard about red tie, but just experienced it firsthand. And it was, it was horrible. I mean, everything was, was closed along the West coast of Florida. I mean, you couldn't go to the beach. You couldn't, and even the fishing sucked, you know, and people would go out fishing with, with mask on, but yeah, Lake Okeechobee. And unfortunately the sugarcane industry has a big hold on, on uh, just this uh, near the flow from, from, from Lake Okeechobee. And, um, and we have a new governor now, but not to get too political, but I know our 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 past governor he relaxed regulations on the um pollution of the sugarcane industry so so they're actually to dump nutrients more of it out of out of uh, the the rivers come out of lake Okeechobee. now we're always going to have red tide i think there's no doubting that but but i think but when you throw gasoline in the fire by pumping those nutrients out you know you're really making it much much worse so i just feel like we're always going to have it but it made it really by having those extra nutrients pumped out out to the west coast of florida and even over in the east coast and it was just a disaster and it was just pouring all this gasoline in the fire and a huge red tide of fish kills and Often kills and I mean, you name it manatee kills, I mean and just everything out there wow. was dying, and and, and all the and the economic impact was, was horrible. I mean, the restaurants closing and, and, and fishing industry being people not being able to fish and um, going to the beach, and it was just a very frustrating experience that I get to go through last summer. Oh.
1: I'm sorry I'll, Sorry to end it on a on a bad note I I, I hear about it all the time and I, I think if the listeners are curious to learn more there's a documentary on YouTube that you can go check out about Okeechobee and just to kind of look at the background of it all It's um, I heard, I haven't seen it yet but I heard it's pretty interesting to to check out but, Do you know the uh, name? You'd have to just Google Okeechobee um, I don't know what the actual documentary cool. uh, name is though um Mike, did you wanna add anything else in there? Well, I already I learned a ton, man. Thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I really appreciate um you taking the time to do that.
3: Sure well, I me mean, I could talk real quick if you have about carbon rolling. There's a little more detail on that.
1: Yeah.
2: Absolutely.
3: <laughs> so really um I talked about earlier, you know, the sunrise, you know, the oxygen's low. Content, you know, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, sunrise, the um yeah, the oxygen and the water content, the water's low. So they're they're rolling. But it's just say real quick about their biology. It's interesting. So, I mean, gills are their real way to extract oxygen from the water. Their gills are their primary mechanism. But when the oxygen level is really low, then they'll they'll actually swim up surface. They'll they'll roll. They'll gulp air from the surface and pump it to their swim bladder. And their swim bladder, like if you open up a typical fish, it's somebody's just like a a, a balloon. Mm-hmm. You know, just full of air. Mm-hmm. But not the tarpon. And if you open it, their swim bladder, it's filled with all this tissue. This Alveoli, like lung-like tissue, Whoa. which is designed really to extract oxygen. So their swim bitters are very different than, than other fish. So they actually will swallow the air, push it in their swim bladder, and the tissue in there will extract the oxygen, and then they can distribute it to their body. So it gives them, you know, a huge advantage. They can they can sw- live and, and survive in low oxygen environments, as well as you know when you're when you're fighting them. It's like because really the typical oxygen content of water is about one percent. But the oxygen content of air is 21%. So when you're fighting them, you'll see that they'll they'll roll. It's like giving them, like giving them a shot of Red Bull. I mean, it gives them a whole bunch of energy there. So a lot of guys will try to keep them from doing it to wear, it down, wear them down That's earlier. That's really you know, badass. Down and dirty. So they'll, they'll call it down and they'll put the rod tip all the way down. down the water. The water. You're trying to keep the fish from rolling, which I haven't been successful. They still seem to manage the way to, to pop up. but <laughs> Maybe when they're really tired, but... But uh, it's just really a great way for them than oxygen, and and also it's a great way for them to you know let you know that they're there when they when they roll. Yeah. But there's actually there's multiple reasons why they roll. For one, that I think the primary is for oxygen levels, um, and uh, especially if a low oxygen or if the water gets really hot, they might you know they'll have to more roll more frequently the, the the warmer the water, the lower oxygen content in it. But they, the the other reasons is to Two other reasons to adjust their, adjust their buoyancy. So sometimes they'll roll, and then they'll they'll adjust their buoyancy, and the will will burp out more of the, the excess of the air that they don't need. So. You can use that as a breadcrumb trail sometimes. So if they're they're rolling and then they go under, look for bubbles come up. Sometimes you'll actually see a line, like, okay, he's going to the left or he's going to the right. So it gives you, especially if you're in low visibility water, it gives you a clue of where the fish is going. Because as they adjust their buoyancy, they'll burp out the extra air, and you just see this little, this little bubble trail will come up, like a, like a breadcrumb trail for you, for tarpon. That's a hot tip of the but week the third right yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the third thing they actually will imitate each other, and it was a real—I find it really interesting—a a paper where they put these tarpon in, in tanks and they um, with different oxygen levels, but they would still—they would roll. So if one, the, the one with low oxygen level would, would roll in one tank, and the one next to it, which is in a separate tank, separate oxygen, would still roll. So there's if one rolls, there's a seventy percent chance that the one next to it will. So anyway, they also imitate each other. So it just helps sometimes when you do see one roll, the others will roll, so like, oh, instead of one, oh, there's 10 of them there, because you'll see them all roll together. So anyway, so the three reasons, you know, oxygen level, so just their buoyancy, and they imitate each other too. So and that's a good point. Why they at all. And
1: it's a good point you made, that, you know, hooking these big fish, it's, it's fun to fight them, but you also want to fight them hard and like any other species, right? And a trout is the same way. You want to fight these fish pretty quickly and hard just so that you can, Get them in quickly, land them, you know, maybe get your glory shot, and, and then, you know, quickly release them back in the water as, as fast as possible. It's. Some of my buddies that have been going over there a lot, it's amazing to see how fast they can land a 100-pound tarpon. You know, I mean, it, they can get them in pretty quick, where the average angler might take a lot a lot longer. Mm-hmm. Um, but just they know that it just helps their survival rate and and to get them in quick and let them go. So you bring up, that was a good point to bring up. Um
3: yeah, yeah, and if you, yeah, you keep them rolling, I've certainly seen people fighting for an hour and a half, two hours. <laughs> I mean, then you increase the probability of shark attacks sure. and, or, or personal level. You increase the probability of your, your line breaking, right? Or yep. getting hooked on a lobster trap or something. So you definitely want to, yeah, bring them in for you and the fish, you know, bring them in as soon as you can.
1: Well, uh or, this is awesome, Mike. Thanks again for doing this. We'll have to have you back on to uh to talk um, maybe bonefish or something like that in the future, but thanks again for your time, man. We appreciate it.
3: Sure, sure. Glad to do. it. Thanks for having
1: me. Yeah, Mike. Hey, uh before you go, do you are is any
2: of your social media stuff public like you'd want people to follow you or like any of your pages or anything like that?
3: Uh, I'm really not that into social media. Um
2: no so worries. Really not. Okay. No worries <laughs> if not.
3: I mean you can give out my, my my personal email if anyone wants to follow up with me, Webomorph at Gmail I can or Nick has that, Webamorph at gmail dot com, but I don't have like a website or, or anything like that. You can Google
1: his name and he's got some articles out there that are super interesting that you can you can dive a little deeper into. So Doctor Yeah, maybe
3: someday Lucky. I'll make a website or something. But and uh but yeah, I'm, um, I guess I'm not very social,
1: so. <laughs> well, we're good.
2: We got we got some knowledge out of your brain, so we're good.
1: <laughs> Thanks again, Mike. Good luck fishing out there with really your kids, appreciate it. and um, yeah, send us a picture of a, of a big tarpon next one you get.
3: Cool. i sure I'll work on it. Sure. Thanks, Mike. We so it. <laughs> before before
4: you
2: go, I need to plug a few things. Um, so if you guys like sure. this episode, please leave us a rating on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, the beta. So we've got the flows beta, Nick. It's a wide open. Now. Um, we've been getting a ton of feedback from people and making changes literally daily. And we're, we're doing another release here shortly. Uh, if you, if you want to get on that beta, uh, you can send an email to fishon at barbless.co, or you can go to our website, barbless.co. And at the bottom there, there's a beta invite, uh, in the footer, fill that out. Um, and we'll get you going on the on the open beta, and it will be free and, until we figure out, uh, make sure we got all the bugs squashed, and it's it's a value to you guys. But we do appreciate all the help and feedback that the uh, folks that are do have the beta installed. Yeah, let us know um, how it Nick is giving us. We just added projections, right, Nick? Yep. yep. Cool. Guidance and forecast. All right. From- well, thanks again, Mike. Really appreciate the time, man. And hopefully someday sure. we get out to uh, we get out to Florida and maybe get a tarpon.
3: Yeah, or I'll bug you in California if I make out there. Show me some well, trout. He wants to salmon. come. He wants to come <laughs> chase steelhead. Uh,
2: uh, the steel the guys in on the west coast want to go chase the tarp, and <laughs> the Guys on the east coast want to <laughs> Ch- go chase steelhead. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't win. No Gras, one's ever happy with the Grass, they grass have, is always right? greener. <laughs> and the grass is always greener. Well, thanks again,
1: man. Appreciate it.
0: Sure.
1: See everybody, fish on.
0: This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, Fish Bio and Amped Up Bill. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vientiane, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com and amp.bill. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the internet of things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.bill.